Hello, Grace Point. Let's hear it for the band. Grace Point Youth, you are dismissed. Uh, Shanna's right over here, ready to take you to your environment. Can we also take just a minute and welcome our online community who are joining us today from all over the world? We are so glad you all are here with us as well. Uh, so before we, um, thank you, come on in, thanks. <laughs> oh, before we jump in today, um, I wanted to invite a friend over, come on over. This, uh, this guy may look a little familiar. Uh, everybody, this is Derek Webb. Say good morning, Derek. Hey, you want to make sure you're in the frame for the video. So, um, so Derek, as, as many of you may know, Derek has, is a musician. He's been in the uh, industry for 20... Is your mic, is your mic on? That's okay. I talk loud. Um, Derek's been making music for 20 plus years now, uh, two, two decades. And uh, we've struck up a friendship, a relationship, and so we're actually here together today to make an announcement that Derek is joining our team here at Grace Point as Director of Content and Curation. So, yeah, that's really, really exciting. Um, Derek, would you just share with everybody what that yeah. means? Yeah, well, I'm so grateful uh, to get to be here with you guys. This morning, I'm grateful to have found, uh, as many of you, I'm sure are, uh, to have found Grace Point, to have found a a place where all the complexity of life, you can bring it all with you. And uh, as we're going to hear about this morning, uh, come in as integrated people and bring all of our questions and doubts. I, like many of you, have had a fairly complicated relationship with the church and faith over the years. But, uh, uh, and it makes, uh, especially what I'll be here hopefully working on and working with uh, Rick and his team and Josh on, is uh, to bring better soundtrack uh, to the life of this community. If, they're, if, uh, if we're doing our job right, uh, then hopefully what we're doing is providing in the music language for you to confess things that you wish to believe. Um, and the only way that we're going to be able to do that is to know you, to know your stories. And if there's a lot of joy in this community, you should be hearing a lot of joy come off this stage. If there's a grief in this community, you should hear some grief coming off this stage. And, and a, a community as peculiar in a good way, as unique uh, as Grace Point, we're not going to be able to just go and find songs that everybody else is singing. We have to have some of our own original soundtrack here. Uh, and I'm suspicious, and, and we're suspicious, that uh, that soundtrack that's desperately needed in a lot of other uh, churches where there are complicated stories being held together. So uh, that's some of the work I hope to do here. Uh, I'm here to, to support and serve Ricky and, and Josh. I'm thrilled to get to, uh, to be part of the community. So thank you guys so much. And uh, we'll hopefully be seeing a lot more of you guys. We're going to have some conversations about music soon. And uh, we'll let you know about that. But uh, thanks. Thanks so much. Derek Webb, everybody. Um, and could, could we get um, the house lights up down here? So I thank you. Um, I'm so excited about this relationship. Uh, there, are so, there have been so many exciting conversations happening behind the scenes for a couple months. And now I'm just glad we're, we're able to, to like, hey, this is a thing. It's happening. We're excited about what's going to come out of this. And so you'll be seeing more of Derek, hearing more from him. And he, he wants to hear from you as well. So we'll be letting you know how that can happen and what that will look like. Uh, so today we're continuing our series through the Beatitudes, these announcements Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount with, and they are pronouncements of blessing. Um, and, and this word blessing, blessed, is so fraught in our culture. It has taken on so much baggage, so many different meanings. And so we've been trying to be really clear in this series. What do we mean by the word blessed in, for our purposes? And for us, when we talk about blessing, we're saying blessing, when Jesus says blessed, here's what he's saying. He's saying, God is with you. God is on your side. 
So a blessing in this context, Jesus is announcing God's withness, God's presence, God's forwardness for people who have traditionally been told God is not with you. God is wherever you are, God is somewhere else, right? God is for those other people over here. God is not for you. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Right where you are, God is with you. God is on your side. The Beatitudes begin with these four uh, blessings for groups of people who are in really unfortunate situations, and the promise that they bring is this reversal, that it's not always going to be this way. The poor in spirit will actually inherit the kingdom, right? The, those who mourn, don't worry, comfort is on the way. The meek will inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice, they will be filled. And then there's a shift, and the last four Beatitudes really focus on people who show up a certain way in the world like the merciful from last week. Um, and th- they show up a certain way in the world, and they're a gift to the world, but that gift to the world that they are comes with a cost. And so there's a blessing associated, the promise associated to the cost that they're paying. And so today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 8. Um, we're going to begin with a new revised standard version. Jesus announces, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. If I'm being honest, this is the first beatitude that makes me go, oh. Because I I don't know about you, I'll just publicly confess, based on what I think that means and have thought that has meant my entire life, I don't fall into that category. I bet some of you don't either. I felt a little judgy laugh there, like, oh, this this guy probably laughs at dirty jokes, sometimes if they're funny. Right? Like, don't act like you don't, right? When we hear pure in heart, we have all these assumptions about what it means to be pure in heart. And I bet if we're honest, if we take away sort of maybe the, the facade and the display, which we'll talk about a little bit later, if we take all that away, if we're honest, I bet most of us feel like if this means what I assume it means, I probably don't fall into the category. Let's see how some other people interpret it, because all translation is interpretation. Here's the message. Um, you're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. Anybody in here have your inside world put completely right? Because I think if you raised your hand, that would be an indicator that maybe you don't, right? Like this idea that, oh, somebody who's got it all nicely and neatly put together, right? Your inside world is pristine. It's all in the right order. Everything is how it should be. You don't have impure thoughts. You don't laugh at dirty jokes. There's nothing about you that even remotely not even a hint of impurity in your life. And here's, the, uh, again, the God's Word translation, which is, every time I say that, I think, it's just way, way to go. You've one-upped every other Bible translation that ever existed. Blessed are those whose thoughts are pure. They will see God. Again, is there anybody who fits in that category? Whose thoughts are pure all the time? Let's say you're not even in the realm of lust, but how many of you have ever thought about punching somebody? Like, just real, ba- like anybody ever been in that situation where you're like, yep, I could totally punch them right now. Like that, you've been there, right? Or, or maybe you've had a jealous thought. You ever seen somebody driving the car you want to drive or getting the job you want to get or being with the person you want to be with or whatever, and you've thought maybe something not so nice about that situation? Is that what's happening here? Or, or is, is this, in the traditional interpretation is generally, well, yeah, this is who God blesses. God blesses the spiritual achievers. God blesses the people who are so spiritual and so faithful that, that they get it all just worked out. God blesses those who have somehow proved their purity 
in their rightness, and now they sort of stand head and shoulders above everybody else spiritually. Well, I, I actually don't think that's what it means. And if this is your first time at Grace Point, welcome. We are thrilled you're here. Um, and one of the things we do here is we ask questions. And, and so the questions I want to ask around this is, first, what does it mean to be pure in heart? And later I want to talk about this promise. What does it mean, this promise that the pure in heart will see God? So let's begin. What does it mean? Let's, let's take heart off of it even. What does it mean to be pure? Um, when I read the word, thought the word, I just made a list of words that popped into my brain. Words like if you, purity, unblemished, uncontaminated, uncorrupted, upright, chaste, faultless, spotless, clean, undivided, undiluted. Um, Soren Kierkegaard actually has a book called Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. Is that what purity is about? This sort of pristine undiluted, undivided, not a doubt. Everything, just, just believe everything you've ever been told. You have all, all of your theology fits in what would be considered orthodoxy, categories of doctrinal purity and doctrinal correctness. Is that what purity is? Is that what Jesus is talking about when Jesus talks about purity? And it's actually really interesting that in the Gospel of Matthew, where this Sermon of the Mount is located uh, specifically, but in, in first century Judaism as a whole, Purity was a really big conversation, and it was a really important issue. But before I jump into that, I want to show you just a, a brief interaction in, later in the Gospel of Matthew. But I want to give a disclaimer, because anytime I'm talking about um, issues of purity, issues uh, around the Jewish faith, I, I like to make a disclaimer, and here's what that is. Christians have perpetuated a damaging myth uh, throughout our history that some, goes something like this. Christianity is a religion of, or faith of grace. Judaism is a faith of works. How many of you have heard that? It could not be more false. Here's, here's the thing. Christians didn't invent grace. We're not even all that good at it a lot of the time. Deeply, and actually, Judaism didn't invent grace. Grace is a, a beautiful, it's something human, like this idea we share, right? It's one of our highest ideals, grace grace. But the Jewish faith is a faith of grace. It is a faith that sees God, and the word that often pops up in the Hebrew scriptures is God's loving kindness, right? So uh, when we talk about Judaism and Christianity, we, we just have to be really clear on the front end that there are ways this gets talked about that have led to all, all sorts of atrocities and all sorts of trauma and all sorts of unnecessary and unneeded suffering because Christians have had this superiority complex. I think it's important to say on the front end that if we, if we're, as a Christian, me, as a Christian, if I come off with an understanding or interpretation of the Bible, Old or New Testament, or of Jesus, that does not make sense to a Jewish person, then the problem is not with them, the problem is with me and in my interpretation. Right? Because Jesus, fasten your safety belts, Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was not the lone European Christian in the Middle East in the first century. Just not true. Jesus wasn't Christian. Jesus' earliest followers wouldn't have gone by the name Christian. Jesus lived and died a faithful, observant Jewish person. He did. And so any discussion Jesus gets into in the New Testament, when he's going back and forth, and there were all sorts of deba debates that Jesus gets into that were major debates in first century Judaism. And Jesus steps right into them with his perspective. Any debate Jesus gets into, he enters into as a faithful Jewish person. 
not as some sort of outsider, not as some sort of like starting a new religion, going to try to silence this older. No, no, he's actually entering into it as a friend, not a foe. And the specific debate I want to show you here in, in Matthew 15 involves a group called the Pharisees. Here's something else you should know. Often these debates um, uh, were really contextual. And here's what I mean. Often the debates that you see Jesus get into, um, many of them have to do with how do we, them, then and there, how do they respond to living under Roman oppression and occupation? Because you have to understand their entire world was upended. Right, just before Rome came to town, they had known about 100 years of liberation and freedom that they had never known really since the period of Solomon. Uh, just an, a remarkable time. What do we do with the Romans? How do we understand God being with us in the context of being oppressed by this global military economic superpower? How do we see? And so different groups would come up with different ideas about how do we get rid of the Romans? You had groups of people who said, here's how you get rid of the Romans. You grab a sword and you start hacking, right? Here's how you get rid of the Romans. You withdraw. And then you have these folks called the Pharisees, and one of their understandings was maybe the reason we're in trouble is because we didn't keep the law well enough. We weren't pure enough. And so if we, we really want God to bless us and God to be with us and God to send the Romans packing, then we need to drill down and we need to focus on making sure that we follow everything to the T so that we are pure, so that we are a people in a place where God could dwell, right? Do, do you see? And that actually, when you think about it, that's not like illogical. But based on their worldview, based on their understanding, it was, a, it was a pretty sensible leap to think maybe we should just focus on becoming more and more Pure. And so here's the debate. Jesus, uh, no, go back. There we go. Then the Pharisees and legal experts came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why are your disciples breaking the elders' rules handed down to us? They don't ritually purify their hands by washing before they eat. Okay, quick poll. How many of you believe in hand washing as a good rule? I'm just making notes now for who I'm going to red bracelet later. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we, we, we understand that hand-washing prevents disease spread, right? It prevents us from getting sick because we know if we have contaminated hands and we eat and we put things in us, there are these little microbes and bacteria that go down and create all these. This is not where they're coming from in the ancient world. Right? They're not talking about, and, and for all the things that I, I tend to be a little bit, um, like hand sanitizer is, and I love it. I've always loved it. But over this last year, it's everywhere, you can literally turn around and sanitize your, it's been a, it's, that, that has been a gift. Um, that's not what they're talking about. They're not talking about hygiene. They're talking about ritual. They're talking about ritual purity. And the idea is if you eat something with impure hands, then it goes inside of you and makes you impure. And purity most often has to do with access to the temple. Access, And in this case with the Pharisees, how do we make sure that God is on our side against the Romans? Well, we need to make sure we're being as faithful as we possibly can to the law as it's, and to the traditions that have been given to us. So the question is, Jesus, your disciples don't seem to be participating in this thing that we think everybody needs to participate in. Everybody needs to wash their hands before they eat. And then Jesus enters into some dialogue, and he comes around at the end of the discussion, and he speaks to the crowd, and he says to them, listen and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that contaminates a person in God's sight. It's what comes out of the mouth that contaminates the person. This is a, for, for the Pharisees, this is a complete flip. 
right? It's not what you're putting into you that's going to somehow make you impure. Actually, when impure things come out of you, it's because there's something going on internally that you need to pay attention to. And the reality is external purity has been the focus of much of my religious upbringing. Anybody else? External purity, making sure you look pure, making sure you look theologically correct. And so that when you say something, people hear it and they think, yes, that is a theologically correct person. Uh, if you grew up in the 80s and 90s like I did, you grew up in something called purity culture. How many of you grew up in purity culture? Right? This whole idea that purity is the most important thing, and there, if, if you do something to make yourself impure. And, and what was interesting about purity culture is that it, it, it didn't just produce shame like if you didn't live up to it. It produced shame just in the conversation. You could have kept purity culture, the rules to a T, and you would have still been saddled with guilt and shame. Because that's the problem with external purity. It's always this carrot out in front of you. It's always this thing that you're trying to live up to, and you never can. Because no matter how religiously pure you become, it is always out of reach. There will always be something that isn't just right. And so what did we do? We focused all the more on being obnoxious. Because that's where this leads, right? On being just brutally as obnoxious as humanly possible. You ever done the thing where you were, in my previous days, I may have done this a time or two, where you pray over a meal in public just to shame all the people around you who didn't pray at their meal in public before? Anybody, anybody ever do this? I cannot be the only one. Oh, Lord, thank you for this food and for the heathen who have not repented and prayed for their food. We give thanks for theirs so they don't choke on it, right? Like that's just that sort of vibe of, uh, you know, you, you so want to be externally, religiously pure, that there can't even be a hint of anything quite off in you. And we were always, I was always told, you have to be very careful. You've got to guard your witness. Anybody else told to guard your witness? You've got to guard your testimony. You can't hang out with people. You can't be hanging out with people who aren't Christian. You can't hang out with people who are wild. You can't hang out with people who are drinking and listen to, you know, secular music. And you can't hang, you can't, because it's people. That will contaminate your witness. I'm really glad nobody gave Jesus that set of information before he like did his thing. Because that's the only thing Jesus was up to, was hanging out with people who challenged his credibility. Right? But that's sort of what we were told. And so it was, in much of what you see today, when people are sort of put on heresy trial and people are making these big, bold statements, we do not agree with this person. What is that about? It's about making sure that our good, pure righteousness doesn't get contaminated by anybody else's anything. It's about keeping all of that at bay. And it's always something you have to try to live up to. I have a theory that if you talk to most religious people in America, they're probably exhausted in some way. Because that performative, and it really kind of ends up being performative religion, that performative religion is you can never let your guard down. You can never just breathe because what if somebody sees, what if I don't present the right things? And Lord knows you would never be honest about your doubts and questions because you weren't allowed to have any. The closest you got was the church saying, yes, you can doubt and you can question as long as you end up believing what we told you to begin with anyway. You, you can't depart from the narrative, but you can question the narrative as long as you end up back where we started. Right? So you would never be able to say, 
gosh, I just, I have questions about whether or not all of the Bible is literal. I actually no longer can, I, I just, my, I've had enough experiences and I've read enough, that I just don't think the Bible's inerrant and infallible. I, I don't even think I can use the word of God to apply to all of it. And then the internet goes crazy. <laughs> right? I mean, there's this, like, uh, gosh, I just don't know. I don't think I can say the creed, any of them anymore. Not without stopping to explain what I don't mean by it. You can never say that because that, is, that shows some sort of impurity. Like your beliefs are not, they're, they're now diluted. And the goal was to never dilute. That's why we were told you don't read anything but the Bible. Anybody else have that, that spiel in your life? And you don't read anything but the Bible. And here's why. Because what they realize if you read other stuff besides the Bible, you realize that what they're telling you about the Bible isn't the truth. <laughs> and you can't have you questioning the narrative. And then Jesus launches into this idea of what I'll call internal purity, or what Jesus here calls purity of heart. And this is not about not having an impure thought. This is not about uh, having, um, not, not having, laughing at a dirty joke. This is not about not being lustful. No, no, I don't think Jesus is talking about any of that. I think Jesus is talking about a kind of internal pursuit of transformation. People who are pursuing a certain kind of life. Let's put it like this. I, I think the pure in heart next slide, are those who are pursuing an authentic, integrated life. And I put slash faith, but here's the point. It's not even about the faith, because what we often do is we do faith over here and life over here, so that we end up living like this, right? And we even do this religiously, where we have our own sort of things we're wrestling with. We can't believe the same way anymore. We're struggling with. But we never want to say it out loud, because that might get us in trouble. And so we live sort of with this internal, anybody ever been in that situation where you're sitting through a church service, hearing something that you think is just God, maybe right now, hearing something that you think is just God awful, and knowing you can't believe it, but you can't say anything, or else you'll be excommunicated. Anybody ever been in that situation? You can't raise your hand and go, um, What? Because that is dangerous ground. I think the pure in heart are people who say, I can no longer live in this disjointed, unintegrated way. I want to pursue something authentic that is honest, that is fully integrated with who I am, that there aren't, like there's not this head and heart dichotomy, that there isn't this person I am internally and this thing I say externally that keeps me employed or keeps me in good standing with the church. I, I want to pursue it wherever it leads. I think that's who Jesus is talking about. And if that's true, then that means the pure in heart. Uh, next. <laughs> there are people who listen to their doubts and questions. There are people who pay attention to those things. There are people who have begun to trust that the Spirit actually might be up to something when they have a new question when they can no longer stomach the interpretation they've grown up with because it excludes too many people or it's harmed too many people or it's created too much trauma in the world that maybe, just maybe, there's a better way, another way for us to begin to think about this. They begin to listen to those doubts and questions. I, I try to look back and remember when that started for me. But I know at the beginning it was scary. Anybody else have that sense of when you started going, I just don't think I believe that anymore. I don't think I can say that anymore. I don't think I can affirm that anymore. I, I just, that no longer sits with me. No, no longer feels true. And then you, uh, uh, you know, for, for me, it was like beginning to, to look through some non-biblical literature. 
who calls it literature anymore? Like, that is such a, hi, I'm here all week. Um, I started reading, and I remember my, my, my gateway to other books besides the Bible was Max Licato. Like, I remember, like, sneaking the applause of heaven into my bedroom like it was, you know, another kind of magazine. And, like, reading it like, oh, my goodness, I did not know that there were these other takes. And it was a pretty standard take. But it just wasn't in King James English, and I was mesmerized by it. And then I started reading other stuff, which really started to make all these doubts and questions bubble up. And I could not, it it became like, for my own sanity and mental health, I had to pay attention to these questions. I could no longer, and for me as a pastor, living this one life on stage, trying to repeat the things that people expected me to repeat, while also knowing deep down that I no longer think that's true and it probably hurts people, and beginning to try to make that shift, it's scary And my assumption is, here at Grace Point, there are those of you in the room who you've been down this path of paying attention to your doubts and questions for a long time. But I meet people all the time who, you're here because you've been told that somehow you're on dangerous ground. And you're just looking for a place where maybe you can breathe and be honest. I think Jesus, is when he talks about the pure in heart, I think he's talking about people who are so earnestly seeking an authentic life, that they're willing to pay attention to those things that they've been told are dangerous, but actually they're, they're part of who they are, and it just might be the Spirit whispering into their ear. I think it also means, next, they embrace vulnerability. They embrace vulnerability, not in a performative sense, but in a really deep honesty. There is something powerful and terrifying about being in a room full of people where a whole group of people have this one interpretation. It's very kind of closed and narrow, and you don't see it that way. And somebody asks, well, what do you think? Anybody ever been in the, well, what do you think situation? And like, you're like trying to figure out, how do I not lie to these people, but how do I also not get like witnessed to right now and led to the Lord in a different kind of way? Like there's that sort of, and, and just beginning to be able to be vulnerable and saying, look, I don't know. I don't know. They, that, there should be an entire class for pastors in seminary where every time they just come in for an hour and a half and just have to repeat, I don't know, again and again and again because we're trained to have all the answers and really, well, honestly, we may have hints and guesses and nudges, but we don't really know because nobody does. And there's a certain getting to a, like the pure of heart. There are people who are pursuing that vulnerability where they can just be honest and say, yeah, I, I know you seem to be really convicted about that. And I, I just don't, I don't think I see it that way anymore. I don't think I can go down that path with you anymore. Next. The pure in heart are those who care more about who they're becoming than who others expect them to be. I, th- th- there's something that became clear to me. Um, and it didn't become clear to me at first. It's taken years to become clear to me. But there were a lot of people in my life who, when I started in ministry at 17 years old, because in the denomination I grew up in, there was no like, well, if you feel a call to ministry, then you go to seminary and you get trained and there's all this stuff. I grew up Baptist, and the only thing that really qualified you was like you woke up one day and were like, I'll do it. Yeah, I'd like to do that. I'd like to be a pastor. And now I'm an expert. That's sort of what my experience was. Like, so I just got to, I started preaching, and I just started saying the things that I'd always been told. And I think that there were people in my life who 
had this understanding of what my path would look like. That when I was knocking on 40's door, I would still be saying the same things and, and believing the same things and doing the same things, just more successful at it. And as the emails and the breakup letters and text messages and all the things that came in over the years, what I realized is that I have actually diverted from their plan. That they had this, it's sort of like when your parents have this vision of what you'll do for a living, right? That you're going to go and be this in the world. And they put all that pressure on you and they put all of their sort of need for gratification or whatever on you. And if you don't be this thing, our entire family's ruined. Has anybody had any experience? with that, and there's sort of this, they end up being disappointed, and you're like, no, 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 that's your story, that's not my story. Because for me to be faithful and true and alive in my story, it demanded a shift in direction. For me to sleep at night, I had to listen to these doubts and questions. And there's a certain, there's such a gift of being able to say, I realize what everybody else expects of me, but for me to be alive, and for me to be growing, which I think is a key part of being alive, for me to be alive, then I have to attend to this. And I cannot deny it. I cannot repress it. I cannot ignore it. I have to face it head on. And if that means they're disappointed in me, if at the end of, of my life I can look back and say, I still don't know, but I know that who I, I, I'm farther along the path than I was, and I'm a different person than I started out, and I can actually lay my head down at night and sleep knowing that I left everything, I did everything I could to be the most fully authentic human being I could become. The pure in heart are willing to lean into their becoming regardless of the expectations of others. Next. They pursue internal transformation over external performance. How many of you in this room as you maybe became more vocal about what you believe or didn't, now don't believe, as you've talked about your faith, maybe you've used words like deconstruction, unraveling, you've been, you've been, as you've been talking about these things, you've gotten that email from that concerned family member basically asking you, if, are you going to go you know where now? Good news, you know where doesn't exist. But back to the email. How many of you have gotten the email, are you, are you, still, are you still saved are you still on the path? Have you completely, are you now, have you just left it all together? And, and there's this sense that sometimes pursuing our own internal transformation will look on the exterior like we have completely lost it. Like we have completely abandoned the faith. Like we have completely left the path. And people will say things like, why are you trying to burn the whole thing down? I'm not trying to burn the whole thing down, just part of it. I'm not trying, I'm just, I, I want to see this thing become what it could become. I, I want to see this faith that has played such a huge part and such a huge role in my life. I want to see it become something that actually might look something like Jesus. And not the thing that it's become. Not the big business that it's become but this true, real thing that actually cares about the healing and transformation of the world that longs to see a world of justice and compassion and equity and peace. Like, that is the thing. I don't want to burn the whole thing down. I'm just, I, I think maybe the whole thing's off the rails. And, and yet for so many people, so many of you in this room, you have gotten those questions, and you have gotten those emails, and you have gotten those coffees. Anybody else sort of have when somebody invites you to coffee now, you're like, I don't know. Especially if it's clergy. 
don't go to coffee with clergy. You can go with me. I'm not going to try to convert you. But generally, don't go to coffee with clergy, right? Because it's sort of this thing that's happening below the surface. And being pure in heart, pursuing your doubts, pursuing your questions, pursuing, pursuing that authenticity is a beautiful thing, and it is a gift, and it is inspiring. And to other people, it's terrifying. And because it's terrifying, that's why there's sort of a cost to being pure in heart. If you pursue this, you will often be misunderstood. People will think you've completely abandoned everything. And what you are beginning to sense deep down is I'm actually not leaving the path. I feel like I'm going deeper into it. Uh, Yeah, I have tons of doubts and questions and there's all sorts of things I can't affirm anymore, but the person I'm becoming as I pursue this, the Jesus I'm meeting as I pursue this, the possibility as I pursue this is giving me life and hope in a way that religion has never been able to give me life or hope in my entire life. And yes, yeah, it comes with the cost of being misunderstood. People will misunderstand your motives. Why are you doing this? You're just angry, aren't you? Just trying to burn the whole thing down. No, 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 no. I'm just trying to be pure of heart. I'm just trying to become a fully integrated human being. It also means you'll be maligned. Anybody found your name in the comments section, but they didn't tag you? Anybody ever been there? You you sort of find out you were the topic of conversation with your previous Bible study class. That you, somehow people have been whispering about your your new atheism, is what they're calling it. Yeah, there's a chance of being maligned, that you'll be misinterpreted, that you'll be misunderstood. There's a chance you'll be called a heretic. What would the world be without heretics? The reason there are groups of people who know for sure what they believe is because there are groups of people going, I don't think so. Right? There's a chance you'll be called a heretic. There's a chance people will say things about you that you're no longer... Anybody ever been told that you're not a Christian in this room? Anybody ever been told you're not a Christian? Yeah. Well, who died and made them boss? Like, part of what makes you a Christian is that you're like, hey, I'm a Christian. And we look differently, and there's different ways of being Christian. But there's this sense of, yeah, people, people will misunderstand. They will try to push you... Out, they'll doubt you. They'll, they'll cause you to try to doubt yourself in your own journey. They'll cause you to wonder, gosh, have, have I really left the fold? Have I left the faith? Have I, have I wandered off? And the truth is, maybe what you know and sense internally is that, no, 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 if I hadn't have followed this journey, I definitely would have left. I definitely would have wondered. And we take very seriously. There are people in this room right now that, Grace Point, we, are, we know we are your last stop on the way out of church your stop after Grace Point is what John Shelby Spawn calls the Church Alumni Association. (laughs) That's a slow burn on that. You'll get it in the parking lot. Um, But that's where you may be headed. And if that's where you need to head, that's okay. That's okay. But we take seriously that some of you are here looking for that place where you can do this important work and not be told you're a heretic or not be told that you've left the path But what I'm actually saying to you is you are the pure in heart. You are the ones with the courage to do the work to become less of disintegrated and a more fully integrated, alive, growing human being. And to these people, the the pure in heart, Jesus makes this promise that they will see God. What does it mean to see God? 
I used to interpret this as saying, well, if you live a really good, pure life, then when you die, you'll get to go meet God face to face. I don't think that's what it's talking about. What is, Je- what is the promise that you'll see God? I, I think what, here's what Jesus is saying. Those who seek, find. Those who genuinely seek truth on the journey. To others, they may look like they've left. The- no, 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 they're actually pursuing truth. They'll find. Those who are pursuing transformation, not just sort of religious purity and not just sort of an exterior that looks like you have it all together, those, they're going to find. They're going to find transformation. Those who are willing to move deep into mystery, not knowing the outcome, but knowing that they have no... Anybody else have that sense, like that for your, your, your journey has sort of been, like you're standing here and there's a map in front of you and here's the boundary and border and now you, the only place to go is beyond to leave the boundaries and borders of the known map. Somebody at the 9 o'clock service said, you know, back in the old days when they were making maps and they didn't know what was beyond, they would put, here be dragons. It's like, what? It's like, yeah, when they made a map and they didn't know what was beyond the map, they would just put, here be dragons. Like, don't go there. We don't know what's there. It's probably dragons. <laughs> like, why jump to dragons? Like, I think you could have gone, like, maybe it's something really cool. But I think that's what we do, right? Like, oh, oh we can't ask that question. We can't go beyond that there out in the darkness, out in the mist, out in the fog, that's dangerous. But what some of us are finding is the more we move into it, the more we move into mystery, the more we listen to our doubts, what we're finding is that doubt is a kind of faith. And that actually that maybe the ultimate kind of faithfulness is listening to your doubts and pursuing where they go. I think what Jesus is saying in this line on the Sermon on the Mount is, blessed are the doubters, for they have deep faith. Blessed are those deconstructing. They have deep faith. Blessed are those willing to question. Blessed are those with curiosity. Blessed are those who are willing to look completely crazy to everybody around them because there's something happening in them that it's, it, it, cannot be, it cannot be bought. It is an experience that can only be had when you leave the path that everybody else has followed. There's a story in the New Testament. It's probably familiar to many of you. It's a story of Jesus' disciples being on a boat at night and they're asleep and Jesus comes walking to them on the water like you do. And there's actually some some scholarship that suggests that this story was inserted back into the Gospels. And it, it actually is a story foreshadowing and explaining the resurrection experience. That these first disciples of Jesus, when Jesus was taken from them, shattering their expectations, they had no idea what to do. They were lost. They were all in this boat, on this choppy water, afraid, unsure, uncertain. And then with the resurrection experience, whatever that was, Jesus comes to them and one of them, Simon Peter, who was always a bit impetuous, says, I'd like to join you on the water. And so Peter gets out of the boat and he begins to walk on the water. And then what happens next? He sinks. And for 2,000 years, we have maligned him for sinking. You do realize he's the only person out of the boat. There were other people in the boat who never got out of the boat. They sat in the boat. They watched it all happen and said, you know what? That's what happens when you get out of the boat. You sink. And then something powerful happens. As Peter begins to sink into the water, Jesus reaches down and catches him and pulls him back up. 
I think we need to stop villainizing sinking. Because sinking might mean you're on the path. Sinking might mean you have left the security and safety of the boat. You have left the security and safety of certainty. You have left the security and safety of religion. And you have moved into some other place with some other sense of trust that maybe, just maybe, something else is possible. And you begin to sink, and what you find is a hand that catches you. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those willing to sink. Because what you find as you pursue truth wherever it leads you is that on the other side, love will always catch you. Every time. Truth will always catch you. And here's how that blessing, I think, works. Is that we do the catching. As a community, we band together and we catch one another. That's what being a church is all about, catching one another. And for so many of you in this room, the church has not caught you. You had the courage to sink. You displayed great vulnerability. And the church did not catch you. The church stood back and talked about you. The church stood back and said, see, I knew they'd left the boat. And this is what happens. This is what happens when you start reading Max Licato. You start to sink. The church should have caught you. And this church, this community, is a community full of people who every single time we will catch you. Where I have seen God the most in my life has been in the faces of people who have caught me. When everybody else bailed, when the people who religiously raised me would have nothing to do with me. It's the people who came alongside and told me I wasn't crazy or I wasn't on dangerous ground, that I was actually onto something, that the Spirit might actually be leading me, that I may be moving toward a more fully authentic, integrated human life. I have seen God in the face of every one of those people. I have also seen God in the face of people I have had the privilege of helping catch. I have seen the divine in their eyes. I fully believe that that's what a community like Grace Point is all about, catching each other, encouraging one another to leave the boat, knowing that sinking isn't the end. It's actually an exhilarating part of a new beginning. Are you with me? Let's pray. God, for my friends in the room who are pure in heart, they are on the path. They're paying attention to their questions and doubts. They might use language like deconstruction, unraveling. They may talk about uncertainty. They may be able to articulate right now way more about what they don't think anymore than what they do think. And sadly, in large sections of our faith, they're excommunicated, silenced, marginalized, Shame and guilt are thrown at them. And in reality, Jesus says, no, 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 blessed are you. Blessed are the pure in heart, those pursuing authenticity, those pursuing a fully integrated human life. 
those who long to become transformed in every possible way. Those who long to be able to sleep at night. God, we are grateful for them. We are grateful for their voice, their doubts, their questions. We are grateful that they remind us again and again that sinking isn't an act of unfaithfulness, that it takes a great act of courage and faithfulness to even be on the water. And may we be a community that catches one another every single time. We're grateful for the pure in heart. We offer this in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen.